said you wanted to know how to get to Capone. Do you really want to get him? You see what I'm saying? What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That's how you get Capone. And you're listening to Sean Connery and Kevin Costner. And of course, that's the classic, The Untouchables. And the writer of those words, and my goodness, what words, is David Mamet. And his new book, Chicago, is just terrific. And it's a novel. And David is also a terrific playwright. And he has written such classics as American Buffalo and Glengarry Glen Ross, which itself became a classic film. He's also written and directed his own gems, House of Games, a classic about conmen, Homicide, The Spanish Prisoner, State of Maine. And he's also won acclaim for several screenplays, including The Verdict with Paul Newman, Wag the Dog, The Postman Always Rings Twice, The Untouchables, Hoffa, and The Edge, which, by the way, get it on Netflix. Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. It's terrific. Well, we had a chance to sit down with David Mamet earlier, and here's our recorded conversation about his book, Chicago, and about his life. David, in this book, one of the characters, central characters, is the city itself, and it's a city you grew up in. What is Chicago? Tell people who've never been there, give them a feel for this city. How's it different than San Francisco or New York? Because it's not New York, and it's not San Francisco. No, people said, I think it was Mencken who said it was the first American city that wasn't European, was Chicago. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about this, because, you know, I wrote the book, and there's certainly a I mean, it would be un-Chicagoan, but accurate to say there's an ethos there. But I was thinking perhaps it's something different. Perhaps it's something to do with geography. Every time I go to to San Francisco, for the first hour, I'm saying, honey, send my clothes. I love it here. And after about four hours, I'm saying, yoke me out. Get me out of here. It's just something about the energy there that's it's odd. Maybe it's because of where I grew up. And then I think about the Los Angeles thing, about the geographical energy here. That's this little spit of land, which is artificially maintained between this uncaring desert and this uncaring ocean. And there's a very bizarre kind of life that goes around. And if you think about Los Angeles literature, what there is of it, almost all of it takes place at night. It's, you know, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and Joseph Hansen and novels about mistaken identity and people not knowing who they are. It's all the same book. And it has something to do with geography. And if you go back and look at uh, Richard Henry Dana, you know, writing about landing on the coast here, just the south of Santa Barbara, and whatever that was, 1820 or 1830, he says the same thing. He says that the people didn't really live there. So there's something odd about these two cities to my sensibility. On the other hand, Chicago and New York have an internal energy that I think comes from geography. I mean, they're the confluence of a lot of... Um, uh, in, in both cases, of a great body of water, a great river system, and land transportation. That's why the people s- settled there. And there's, I think, something intrinsic, I hate to say in the rocks and stones, but maybe it is. But what do I know? 
Yeah, we did a terrific hour on not the Chicago fire, but what happened after, David. And by the way, it was an interesting story why the city built burned down, because it had grown so fast in only 30 years. And all these buildings were crowded together in a long, arid summer, and poof, it goes up in smoke. What was remarkable, David, was how quickly Chicago rebuilt the energy and the power of the spirit of the people, the practicality and the just the grit of these people. It was remarkable. Yeah, well, there's always been a great energy. You know, it's been a town of working people, you know, and, and New York has been a town of merchants and, um, uh, uh, and plutocrats, you know, that, the, that's, that's just what it is. I mean, to the point now where they're today, there's no lower class and no middle class in, in New York City. But Chicago's always been the working people. Yep. And, and let's drill down a little bit on your childhood in Chicago, because you grew up here. This, this place is in your blood. Uh, talk about, if you can, David, your dad, because I think so much of your writing, uh, I think, comes from that relationship, at least maybe not consciously, but certainly subconsciously. Talk about that. Well, my dad and his brother, Henry, um, all four of my grandparents are, are immigrants. They all came over from uh, Poland, which was then the on the passports, it says Russia, Warsaw, Russia, and the Chubichev Russia was back and forth. At that time, it was controlled by Russia. Poland didn't exist for those 20 years. And um, my uncle was born over there. My dad's three years younger. He's born right over here. And they moved to, to Chicago from Brooklyn. And um, my dad was raised by a single mother, my, my grandmother. And most of his life in the Depression. And she didn't speak English very well. And so they were very poor. And he worked real hard. He got got out of the army, and he went to a junior college. And then he got into Northwestern University Law School. And I, I think he I think he might have forged his uh, credentials to get into Northwestern University Law School. And he graduated first in his class because he just he was wicked smart. And um, he went to work. He clerked for Arthur Goldberg for a while. Then he worked for um, Elmer Gertz, who was a very famous Chicago attorney. So there's that. So then before Levittown, there was this community, I think it was the first planned community after the war, called Park Forest, Illinois. And so I think I was like, one, we moved down to Park Forest, and there's early Kodachrome films of these wonderful little brick houses the size of somebody's small garage today, you know, and everybody was happy as a clam, you know, because these were poor immigrant kids, depression kids, war kids, and all of a sudden, because of the GI Bill, and the uh, uh, the building of these uh, uh, developments, they could have a house. Something was just the, the impossible dream. And then we moved to a community called South Shore. It was a little Jewish enclave of a few blocks between a uh, Catholic neighborhood and a black neighborhood. Black black neighborhood was the other side of Stony Island, and the Catholic neighborhood was the other side of 71st Street, and there like five square blocks of Jews living there. And we used to get beat up all the time. And um, the uh, the neighbor was kind of interesting. Some interesting people came out of that little, it's called South Shore Highlands, I think. I I came out of the Larry Ellison, who founded Oracle, came out of there. And Sherry Lansing, who was the head of Columbia for many, many years, came out of there. And uh, uh, Seymour Hirsch of the New York Times came out of there. Several other people who did rather well coming out of this little dinky enclave. And when we come back, we learn what happens to David Mamet. And my goodness, how far he came from this little dinky part of Chicago. More with our conversation with David Mamet after these messages.
Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with novelist, playwright, screenwriter, David Mamet, and his new book, Chicago. We're talking about his life and the town he grew up in, and David entering high school. And so I went to the public schools when my last couple of years of uh, high school, I moved in with my uh, dad and my stepmother, Judy. I went to a magnificent school called the Francis Parker School and started, became friendly with the family that owned Second City. And I started working as a, as a busboy at Second City. So I'd see three shows a night of improvisational comedy, which really gave me the bug. And then uh, there we are up to date. Talk about, if you can, the influence of your dad. That is, psychologically. You know, it, it sounded to me like he was one of those old-school tough guys and nothing you could do would quite measure up. You, you have a quote in, a, in an article in New Yorker where you said, the virtues expounded by him were not creative but remedial. Let's stop being Jewish and let's stop being poor. Talk about those kinds of words. Well, you know, I, I think about my dad many times every day with thanks. And he grew up in a family without a father. His father deserted the family. And so he was raised by a marvelous mother, my grandmother, whom he adored. But he was a little bit of an old school father. But the most more important thing is that he was a magnificent role model because he worked like a dog. He would work all day and come home and change into his pajamas and a bathrobe and then eat his dinner sitting at the dining room table while working on the brief for the next day. And one day he was working really hard. He was very anxious. I said, you know, Dad, I said, you know, don't worry about the results. You're doing your best. And he said, they don't pay me to do my best. They pay me to win. So a lot of times I'm thinking of giving up and the times that I don't give in to giving up. Uh, I I remember, you know, like like him, I got the best job in the world and I have a talent for it and it pays the rent. So I, I better work hard at it. You know, there's a quote in that other New York, that New York article I told you about that was, I think, telling. You say, quote, uh, your time at the Hull House Theater in Chicago. It was the first time in my confused young life that I had learned that work is love. Talk about that. Well, Hull House there, there was a great theater run by a man named Bob Sickinger. And all the community theaters around the country were doing Charlie's Aunt and the Impossible Years. And once in a while, if they were really bold they do the importance of being earnest you know but Sickinger was doing the brig by uh, 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 Kenneth Brown and the three penny opera and the Maurice Scal plays and he just kept everybody there all night rehearsing and we all knew I don't know how he knew but we did that when we were doing those plays there wasn't any better theater being done that night any place in the world it was just it was just pure love and, and you know people hurried home from 12 hours at their straight job and spent 12 hours working with Bob it was it was marvelous one of your colleagues said we invented this myth of the Chicago theater scene what made the Chicago scene so great was that no one cared the audience didn't care they were profoundly indifferent to everything we did there is real freedom in that isn't there David well, there is, but you know, I don't know who said that, because I don't know whether that's that, true. That was Gregory Mosher said that. Oh, Greg said that. Yeah. No, but no, that's not, that's, I think that's a little bit poetic, because what I remember is quite the opposite. When I had, you know, me and Billy Macy and Steve Schachter, Patty Cox, we had our theater over on, on Halstead Street, and um, people would come up to you on the street, neighborhood people, and they'd say, hey, there was a good play last month, Dave. They understand that they're entitled to have a good time, and uh, no one's asking them to be esthetes. 
but rather we're grateful for them to show up. And if they say, geez, that was great, I'm going to tell my friends, what could be better? I don't think they were indifferent. I, th I think that two things made the theater scene. One was the audience, and the other one was uh, Richard Christensen of the Chicago Daily News. And what, what were your thoughts about critics as you were a young writer coming up? I mean, it, it's, 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 uh, they're assholes. You know, I mean, they were then, they are now, but there are exceptions. And a couple of the great exceptions came out of the city of Chicago, and, and one of them was Roger Ebert, rest in peace, along with Gene Siskel, who did a lot to shape American movie making. And the other one was Richard Christensen of the Chicago Daily News, along with Glenna Sice of the Sun-Times, to encounter critics who said, wow, this is great, thank you, here's what I liked. They understood themselves as part of the theatrical process, rather than uh, as, as people who are given a, a free ride uh, to CARP. Well, you've done something that very few people have done. We've had some novelists make their way to screenwriting, and that's happened quite a number of times for Mario Puzio. I mean, we could name a lot of folks who've written novels and written great, screen, great screenplays. But you go ahead and you start this thing called screenwriting, which is so different, David. It's such a different talent. So many actors have a hard time going from the big screen to the big stage. It's such a different craft. Um, how did you, did you just do it? Did you just have a sense for it? Uh, talk about that transition. Well, I worked hard at it. You know, when I was a kid, I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater in New York for a year. And before you came, they gave you a reading list of about 50 books. So, of course, I read them. I loved them. And a lot of them were by the Russians. And uh, Stanislavski and uh, Vakhtangov and Meyerhold and Nemirovich Danchenko, and they all wrote a book. And some of them were by the people who'd worked with the Moscow Art Theater and then went into film. And I was really fascinated by their theory of filmmaking. And what they said was, the audience understands film as the juxtaposition of images. The image doesn't need to be inflected. The juxtaposition tells the story. The famous example is a young woman, shot one. A young woman, her head is down on her arms. She raises her head. Shot two, a judge sitting at a high dais wraps his gavel. Okay. Example two, shot woman, shot one, same shot, young woman, her head on her hands, she raises her head. Shot two, uh, half seen through a door, a baby standing up in a crib crying, right? So the, the idea we get from the first is hearing the verdict, and the idea we get from the second is a mother's attention, but the first shot's exactly the same. So if you look at what great film actors are doing, they're doing damn little. What they have is the great courage and understanding not to help the thing along. You write a lot about this in True and False, by the way. You have a, you have a lot to say in that book about acting, but one of the interesting things was, was what you had to say about the method acting and, uh, and a lot of the things that were being taught in New York at the time. And I don't think you were a terribly big fan of the method to be charitable, David. Well, there's nothing there. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a fake. It was Lee Strasberg and my teacher, Stanford Meisner, were the, both the babies of the group theater. And, you know, they were both started out actors didn't do well. So they became directors and theoreticians and they formed two schools, uh, the Meisner school and the Strasberg school that were an attempt on their part, legitimate attempt to understand what acting was because they were drawn to it. They loved it. They couldn't do it. They tried to understand it. So what Lee Strasberg did, I don't think he did it on purpose. He just got very, very lucky, is he had a, a, a beginning reputation. And so everybody in the country wanted to get into the actor's studio. 
So he would see a thousand actors and pick two. So who's he going to pick? He picks the people with the greatest talent, right? So they are going to reflect glory on the actor's studio, not from anything that he taught them, but from the fact that, that he chose them. Yeah, and so all of that psychological warfare, that the, and I studied with a couple of these characters, and they were more Svengali than anything else. I was repulsed. I had played basketball and played sports, and sports is all about activity and action. It's doing. And in large measure, these people were putting me on a couch, and I, I actually resented it, David. Well, it's terrible, and what it, it, it calls for a, um, a codependence, uh, a folly I do between the teacher and, and the student. And the, the teacher has to you know, pretend he's teaching something, he may think he is. And the student has to pretend he's learning something, he may think he is. But what he's really undergoing is shame. And so the only way that he can overcome his shame is either to just quit and say, fuck you, I'll figure it out myself, or to say, let me try harder. So what you see is a lot of actors who, quote, study the, quote, method, trying harder, which all that does take you out of the scene. And when we come back more with David Mamet, we promise not to take you out of the scene. Indeed, we're going to put you in a scene as we go out. The movie Glengarry Glen Ross, based on Mamet's play. In this scene, Alec Baldwin is giving a motivational speech to some real estate salesman in a rainy office in downtown Chicago. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. You get the picture? You laughing now? You got leads. Mitch and Murray paid good money. Get their names to sell them. Turn to our conversation with author David Mamet, the book Chicago. Let's pick up where we left off. You have a, there's almost a, a running theme in a lot of what you write, David, about the expert culture. And you have this great line. And by the way, long before you came to conservatism, there was a line I'll never forget you wrote. And I'm, I'm approximating, and I don't remember where I read it, but it said something like this. And you were speaking directly to me, who was trying to get direction from these gurus, when in the end you were saying, find it yourself, dummy. It's okay. And you said, if you want to learn how to act, uh, act. If you want to learn how to write, write. If you want to learn how to direct, direct. The audience will teach you. Uh, don't go to college. Don't listen to that professor. You were really encouraging all of us, young actors, young artists, young writers, to write in front of audiences as quickly as possible and learn from that experience, which, of course, David, even though at the time you didn't know it, that's a very free market idea that the audience, the consumers, the market will teach. 
Yeah, well, I guess it was. Yeah, I guess it was. But I mean, they certainly taught. I don't know any other way to learn how to write a, a, a play and to put it on in front of an audience. Because if you're writing for a teacher, you've just uh, uh, subjected yourself to slavery. You're saying everything's dependent. I'm not a free person. Everything's dependent on the opinion of someone else. When in fact, the opinion of the audience is not is not mitigated through intellectuality. They're going to give you a, like. Billy Wilder said, individually they may be dumb cuffs, but collectively they're a genius. Yeah. You know, that, that, and when, when you got to, when your life, when you're living your livelihood and your self-respect depends on a verdict from which there is no appeal, you're probably going to start paying attention to it. And we're talking to David Mamet. His book is Chicago. It's a novel. Pick it up. The dialogue from the beginning, he'll own you. We're going to get to that in a little bit, a little bit more about his life. By the way, Mario Andretti's life, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. It's up there. We finished it. It's beautiful. Billy Graham's life, that's up there. And, he, and Johnny Cash, tomorrow night is his birthday, and we celebrate it. We celebrate it every year. You're going to hear from Johnny. You're going to hear from Rick Rubin and a lot of musicians. It's a remarkable hour, OurAmericanNetwork.org. David, you write about talent, and you write about courage, and you say this. You said, a concern with one's talent is like a concern with one's height, it is an attempt to appropriate prerogatives which the gods have already exercised. Talk about talent. I don't know what it is. You know, a lot of people, I, I, I'm doing a bunch of publicity because um, I just wrote this book. And so I kind of like people to know about the book. But I stopped doing publicity for years and years and years because it made me feel stupid. And I said to one guy, I said, one guy, I just started doing publicity. He said, why, why did you stop doing publicity? I said, because it made me feel stupid. And I said, well, and he said, well, that's ridiculous. I said, well, see, because what I, what I realized, most of the questions that get asked are unanswerable. They're in effect rhetorical questions, which are statements. Right. Say, my God, how did you do those rhetorical question? There's no answer to it. I don't know. You know, it beats the hell out of me. I could sit on and try to figure it out, but it ain't going to help you. Now, one of the great geniuses of modern life, I think, is Bill Waterston, who did um, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, right? And I love Kelvin and Hobbes, but Bill, later on in his career, did a, a kind of compendium, and he said, oh, here's how I got this idea, here's how I got that idea. And he just he, he knocked the sheen off it. I thought, man, you're coming very close to talking me out of appreciating the, uh, I don't want to know how you did it. Right. And P.S., you don't know how you did it. That's so true. And, and then all the mystery's gone and, and, and don't tidy it up for me and don't explain what it all means. What's the, uh, they're just the worst questions for artists and they're even worse for the audience, David. By the way, in that same thing on talent, you wrote this, a common sign in a boxing gym. Boxers are ordinary men with extraordinary determination. I would rather be able to consider myself in that way than to consider myself one of the talented. And if I may, I think you would too. Talk about courage, David. It's a it's something that I think is in short supply, and I think you, in your own way, write a bit about that as well. Well, I mean, there's a great line in in Three Kings where it's a George Clooney and he's head of a he's in charge of some platoon and some go, about to go into combat and the kid says I'm scared and George says, uh, well, you know, you got to do the acting and get the courage afterward, and the kid says that's. F and Joyce says, yeah, you bet it is, but that's the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Let's talk about your, your faith walk, if we can. I mean, and, and you start to write in, in the mid-2000s about being Jewish and what that means. Um, talk about this ex exploration into faith and religion. Well, I got married in 1991, and uh, my wife, who is, uh, she has a bunch of uh, Jewish ancestors on her 
one side of her family, she grew up in Scotland, her parents are British, and they were of no particular religion. And she said, well, we have to have a Jewish wedding. I said, well, what an odd thing to say. Well, well why? Why is that? She said, well, you're Jewish. And I thought, well, gosh, that's true. So she started taking introduction to Judaism classes for uh, people not of, not, of, not of Jewish faith. And I started going with her class. I realized I don't know anything. I was raised in this uh, Episcopal reform movement in Chicago. It was completely assimilationist. And it was like, you know, it was like taking the bath in cold water with your clothes on. There's just nothing to it. And that the, the assimilationist streak of American Jews, especially after World War II, is completely understandable. I mean, I was born in 47 and 45. They were throwing my people alive into ovens, for Christ's sake. It's no, it's no wonder that the Jews wanted to assimilate, but they threw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, uh, so we started investigating Judaism, so she converted, and we started going to synagogue and learned Hebrew and found, my God, this is, this is a magnificent religion. And all, you know, all of us red diaper babies who said, oh my God, the magnificence of the Inuit or the magnificence of the American Indian or the magnificence of the African American or the blah, blah, blah. Why is it that my particular ethnicity is the only one that doesn't have a beautiful tradition? And we found out uh, in effect that it does. And a pretty old one too, David, a pretty old one. And yeah. it's ama- I think it's fascinating that people go through this world not knowing who or what they are. And it must have been something to you to discover your own history. It was grand. I mean, the other thing about history is that the people who came over in like right around world, before and after World War One was my my grandparents. They left everything behind. I mean, the idea that one would know one's great grandparents or one's great uncle was unheard of. I mean, everybody I knew in my little community growing up. Their, either their parents or their grandparents were immigrants. They had no artifacts from the old country. They, they didn't have that many relatives from the country. If they had any at all, they probably either got killed by Hitler or Stalin. And the kids were being raised in this uh, kind of phony, baloney, fuzzy little bunnies uh, uh, reform movement. And Judaism was reduced to, quote, good works. It was, it was reduced to the Democratic Party. And when we come back, more of our conversation with David Mamet, author of Chicago. We're going to dig into the book. Right now, we want to throw to a clip from one of the great pieces of writing from Mamet, and it's the 1982 screenplay from the movie The Verdict. Here's Paul Newman playing Frank Galvin, a once-promising Boston attorney who was fired from an elite firm because he was an alcoholic. This Irish Catholic guy, down on his luck, gets handed a case from a friend. It's an open-and-shut med-mal case, and he should probably just take the money. But he goes to visit a girl in a coma, and he sees her, and his Catholic conscience is sparked, and he becomes a lawyer again. This is his remarkable closing argument. We become weak. We doubt ourselves. We doubt our beliefs. We doubt our institutions. And we doubt the law. But today, you are the law. You are the law. Not some book, not the lawyers, not a a marble statue, or the trappings of the court. See, those are just symbols of our desire to be just. They are They are, in fact, a prayer, a fervent and a frightened prayer. 
prayer. In my religion, they say act as if you had faith. Faith will be given to you if, if we are to have faith in justice, we need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. See, I believe there is justice in our hearts. Turn to our conversation with novelist, screenwriter, and playwright David Mamet, and we had left off talking about David's spiritual journey, and we continue now with our recorded conversation. I would assume that your 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 exploration into faith, almost inexorably, David, led you into a sort of a political transformation. One probably prompted the other in some respects, didn't it? Well, I think you're probably right. You know, for example, I'll tell you this. I wrote a book called The Wicked Son because I started thinking it's called anti-Semitism and the, and the Jewish self-loathing and the Jews. And I started thinking about Jewish anti-Semitism and Jewish assimilationism. I thought very long and hard about it. Wrote a pretty good book and Fran Lebowitz read it. And she said, oh my God, wait till you see what the left is going to do to you. And I thought, well, I don't know what you mean. I mean, you know, I'm on the left. I don't know what the left would find objectionable to about the book. But apparently some people got upset because I was telling the truth. And so the more I studied uh, 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 Judaism and, uh, and uh, Jewish literature and the, and the Torah, the more I realized that that's flat out the inspiration for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, that it comes absolutely from a Judeo-Christian understanding of the world, and that that understanding has, has kept us together for and fighting for 240 years. Indeed, and 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 what's what's fascinating about this this journey of yours, David, is that ultimately you end up writing a, an article in the Village Voice, and I don't think anyone was prepared for that. And were you at the reaction? Well, I wasn't prepared for it because the article that the title that they gave to the article was the original title of the article was political civility, because I, my rabbi at the time had been speaking very. Uh, very vehemently about uh, about respecting each other's opinion and uh, uh, hearing the other fellow out and having the ability to tell the other guy's opinion back to him such that he says, yes, that's true. And so I wrote an article called Political Civility. And in the article, I said, I said I, I, I'm even being uncivil to myself. I said, for example, for years I've been referring to myself as a brain-dead liberal. I said, well, that's just not civil, bubbity-bubbity-boo. So the Village Voice takes it, and they put a scare headline on it, yep. why I am no longer a brain-dead liberal, and all my friends became acquaintances. Let's talk about fiction, because this, this book, it's about so much, and I don't like giving away too much, but it's about a place, it's about a time, and I, I'm going to quote J.J. Johnston to you, because he's a great actor from Chicago, and he said of you this, Dave got hit with the gangster bag early. These crooks, most of them have pipe dreams. They can't do anything right. Like they say, these guys would F up a two-car funeral. And so these wise guys, this edgy part of life that was a big part of Chicago, 
Well, it becomes a big part of your book. Uh, talk about why a piece of fiction now and why this book. And it feels like it's hitting so many of the themes you've been playing with your entire life. Well, I was just having a time in my life. I started writing one afternoon. You know, I just got sick of myself for being such a lazy swine and got to be four o'clock. So I started writing a little sketch about something or other in Chicago. The next day I wrote another one. After a while, I said, oh, maybe there's a book here. And uh, when you grow up in Chicago, you grow up with, uh, you know, just like um, uh, in, in Naples, you know, you grow up, you're going to be expected to sing. In Chicago, the, the ethos, at least that we grew up with in my generation on the south side, was the gangster ethos. That's where Al Capone lived. Your great-grandmother brought him groceries. He once gave a turkey to your aunt. Oh, that's where the cop, blah, blah, blah. That's where Dean O'Banion got shot. I went to high school across the street from the garage where they had the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And uh, I used to walk in the park where Nails Morton's horse kicked him to death. And that's kind of... But those were kind of like the the bumping posts, if you will, of of Chicago geography. It's all gangsters. Yeah, and and the the process of writing for you, uh, it, it's you know I, I have something here of you talking about how at least when you were writing movies, you hit it on file cards first, and then you said when the progression of incident incidents is so clear that you no longer need the cards, then you're ready to write. And then we learn that you write very fast once that happens. That true still for this and and for you? Well, a, a, a novel's really really different because you get you get to muck about, you know, you get to expatiate a little bit. And uh, but there's two things that the 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 they're equally important in a play and perhaps less equally important in a novel. In a play, there has to be the immediacy of the line. The line has to be beautiful and poetic, and line has to make sense. The second one is every line has to put forward the plot. If both of those things aren't true, you might have a, a an okay play, but you're not going to have a good, and you'll never have a great play. It has to do both things. Whichever you do first, you're going to have to do the second one second. If you start off and you write a plot of the play, you're going to have to go back and make sure that each line, each instance of each interchange stands by itself rather than simply being tendentious and putting forward the plot. And if you do the other thing, you write this great scene but doesn't put forward the plot, you either got to throw it out and start again or make it put forward the plot. Because all dramatic writing is about making the audience wonder what happens next. Yep. You can make them wonder what happens next and also delight them in what's happening. Now you're writing a pretty good play. Yep. So you need, both of these things need to be done in a novel too, but perhaps the, the, the plot is not as important. You get, you get to say, oh, by the way. Yeah. You get to take detours. In fact, that's why people read. They want a good detour from, from now and then. But, you know, you're, you're almost talking like uh, Hitchcock was listening to Truffaut. And, and on that great interview that we've covered once here on this show, I mean, Hitchcock was the master at moving that plot. and hurt. I mean, his plots hurtled along and the characters just hurtled along with them. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, talk and talk of do you, do you teach anymore, David? Do you have an inclination to teach? You used to teach. I'd seen you teach. It 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 it, it was really remarkable because you weren't a typical teacher. You weren't playing the Svengali game at all. You were an anti-teacher teacher, almost like a Bear Bryant. You were more like a coach than you were a teacher. And then you were pushing people out to do stuff. Uh, do you have any inclination to do that anymore at this stage of your life? Well, you know that's that's a, that's a very gratifying to hear you say that because I said you know. I don't have a lot of respect for most teachers. I've seen a lot of them, you know, both in the private schools and public schools, schools I worked at, schools I sent my kids to. Some of them are geniuses. 
Some of them are time service, just like any other profession. But I don't think the fact that someone's a teacher entitles them to our respect flat out. Let's see how good they do. But what we remembered all through our lives is the coach. It's true. Our, we did an hour on Bear Bryant, uh, David, and we talked to people who hadn't been under his influence for 40 years. And every single one of them had a moment and a memory. And it was all the same. He taught me how to be a man. He taught me how to dig deeper. It wasn't the actual X's and O's. It was something so much more spiritual. It had a spiritual dimension to it. And it was this guy seeing these guys' capacity and that there was more inside them than they knew. And uh, I just think there are very few people who have that gift. And you had it. And I, I'm sure you still have it. And the question I'd always, I always ask people is when we have these gifts, uh, does God command us to, to apply those gifts? Um, well, so th- that's why I ask. These guys came to me last year. They're, they're doing some um, downloadable thingy called Masterclass. And they have a bunch of celebrities, actors and writers and uh, uh, physicists and blah, blah, blah. And they asked me what I do. And I said, and I thought about it. I said, yeah, sure. So I was in the, the studio for several days and um, they added it down to, I think, a five, it might be even five hours. And they prepared it magnificently. And they talked me through various aspects of writing and dramatic construction and uh, uh, so forth. And I'm very happy that I did that. And uh, I teach once in a while back at my theater company. I'm a member of New York, the Atlantic Theater Company. But um, I enjoy, I, I, I kind of enjoy it too much. You know, I, and, and I, I, I don't want to get in the kid's way. <laughs> well, that's so true. We felt, I felt that just sitting in on two in New York that you didn't want to get in our way. And that shows a lot of faith in us in the end and not in yourself. Uh, David Mamet is the writer Chicago is the book. It's a novel. Pick it up at Amazon.com. Chicago, again, at Amazon. We'll put it up on our website and take a listen. And uh, David, thank you so much for this time. Oh, you're so welcome. We're done. Oh, boo-hoo. I'm having such a good time. (laughs) It was terrific, David. And that was our recorded conversation with author David Mamet, his new book, Chicago. Go to Amazon.com now and get it. The dialogue crackles. It's everything you'd ever expect from a David Mamet novel or any piece of writing And by the way, you know his work from Glengarry Glen Ross. You know it from movies. We played a clip from The Verdict with Paul Newman. And of course, we're going to leave with another clip. But again, David Mamet, Chicago. It's a novel. You won't be able to put it down. Pick it up at a store near you or go online. And again, the novel Chicago by David Mamet. And so we leave with a clip and go and pick up this movie on Netflix if you get a chance called The Edge. 1997, and it stars Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. Hopkins is a billionaire, has a beautiful bride, and Alec Baldwin is a, well, he's a photographer with an eye for that young bride. There's a plane crash in the Alaska wild. Uh, Kodiak Bear is on the hunt for the party that's lost. And it takes the old man to teach this young guy how to fight this stalking bear or die. And here's a pep scene in which the older Hopkins is trying to stir the courage of the younger paramour played by Alec Baldwin. Oh, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. Say I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. I'm going to kill the bear. Say it again. I'm going to kill the bear. And again. I'm going to kill the bear. Good. What one man can do, another can do. What one man can do, another can do. And again. What one man can do, another can do. And again. What one man can do, another can do. Yeah. You're damn right. 
This is Our American Stories, and again, the novel, Chicago, and the author, David Mamet. Pick up the book however you can. place houses a security system that rivals most nuclear missile silos. First, we have to get within the casino cages, which anybody will tell you takes more than a smile. Next, through these doors, each of which requires a different six-digit code changed every 12 hours. Past those lies the elevator. This is where it gets tricky. The elevator won't move without authorized fingerprint identification, which we can't fake, and vocal confirmation from both the security system within the Bellagio and the vault below. Which we won't get. Furthermore, the elevator shaft is rigged with motion detectors. Meaning if we were to manually override the lift, the shaft's exit would lock down automatically and we'd be trapped. Now, once we get down the shaft, though, then it's a piece of cake. Just two more guards with Uzis and the most elaborate vault door ever conceived by man. And you're listening to George Clooney and the boys plotting their caper. And that's Ocean's Eleven, the remake of the great, well... Rat Pack movie in the 50s. And by the way, Americans love movies about heists. The Italian Job, Goldfinger, the best James Bond movie about a big heist. And, of course, the scenes in Goodfellas about that epic Lufthansa heist in JFK. And what happened after it really anchors the entire movie. And, well, we're talking about stolen things here in this segment And that brings us to Nate Scott, who's written for USA Today, Fox News. He's at SB Nation now. But this is his own story and a friend's story about a stolen wallet. This is a story about one of my best friends, Riley Flaherty. Riley recently lost his wallet. It's a bummer, but it happens. I was at a Wilco concert at King's Theater in Brooklyn, and after the show, he took an Uber back home to Manhattan. And as soon as he got home, he realized he didn't have his wallet. Riley had a trip the next morning. He really wanted the thing. So he had the driver take him all the way back. He searched the theater, but nothing. Now it's three in the morning, and Riley, dejected, heads back to Manhattan. He has some cash lying around, so he's able to go on the trip. But his wallet's gone. And so he does what you do when you lose a wallet. He cancels his credit cards. He actually was waiting on a new driver's license, so he got one of those. And he bought a new wallet. End of story. Or so you'd think. Because after that, a miracle happened. Well, a sort of miracle. A very New York miracle. Two weeks after he lost his wallet, Riley received a plain white envelope in the mail. His name was written in shaky handwriting on it. 
and inside was his license, his credit cards, and a note. The note read, Dear Riley Flaherty, I found your wallet, and your driver's license had your address, so here's your credit cards and other important stuff. I kept the cash because I needed weed. The metro card because, well, the fare's 275 now. And the wallet because it's kind of cool. Enjoy the rest of your day. Toodles. Anonymous. I've never been so conflicted about a nice gesture, Riley told me. The cash, gone. The wallet, gone. The metro card, gone. But two weeks later, returned in a plain white envelope, a driver's license, and his credit cards. I had already gone to get a new license, and had already gotten all my cards replaced, said Riley. So basically, it was useless to me. He did have this story, though, and no one can take that away from him. And that's so true, and thank you, Nate, and thank you, Riley, for sharing that sort of humiliating story. It's happened to us all. And uh, I don't tell a lot of stories about myself, but I had a, I had something stolen. By the way, we'd love to hear the things from you that got stolen, the most precious things, the stupidest things. But for me, it was a car. It was my first car. And it wasn't just any car. It was a car I'd wanted ever since I'd seen Steve McQueen fire up the Mustang Fastback, the 1968 Mustang Fastback, in the greatest at that time car chase ever seen in movie history. And again, the movie was Bullet. And check it out. It's still, to this day, as good a car chase as you can see and as gripping. And it was a GT2 Plus 2, the one in the movie. And he was chasing a Dodge Charger through the streets of San Francisco, up hills, down hills. It was just fantastic. And McQueen, of course, drove his own car. Uh, McQueen loved speed and ultimately loved racing cars. And so what did I do? Well, like lots of kids, we saw that movie, great product placement by Ford, if it was, and I wanted that car, and so I saved for it, and I got parts for it, and it was many years later, um, almost two decades later, that I was trying to assemble my own version of that bullet car, and not, well, not exactly like it, I couldn't afford it, but something close, and it had the V8, the 289 cubic inch V8, it had the fancy spoked wheels, it had the pony interior. It even had factory air conditioning, which was a drag and a real pain to get. Well, I took that old Mustang Fastback down to Georgetown from New Jersey. And Georgetown is in Washington, D.C. My buddies were there, and I wanted to show off the new car. It was finally ready to go. A little road trip down the New Jersey Turnpike, the Delaware Turnpike, straight around 495, around the Capitol. Right down to M Street in front of Mr. Smith's. It was a rainy night. It was November. And my friends were in the front. I could see them in the front of the bar. So I just left that car running. And I went inside, and it was no more than a minute. And I came out, and that old car was gone. Long gone. And I cried. I mean, I cried. And then I screamed. And then I called the cops. And let's just say, Washington, D.C. at the time, a call for 1968 Mustang Fastback redone. Well, that was a laugher when I told those guys what I'd done. And then the problem, well, telling my dad. And, well, you couldn't lie to my dad. He was one of those old, well, sort of military types who you couldn't lie to. And I finally just told him what had happened. And uh, he said, good luck with uh, your transportation for the next couple of years. And that was it. I walked a lot, and I learned a lesson. Don't leave a car running with the keys in it 
on a crowded city street. Pretty dumb, huh? My theft story, Nate Scott's story, here on Our American Stories. And you can go to Our American Network to hear all that we do, ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're about to hear the story of Michael Cole. And that's a name you may not know, but you know the character he played if you're old enough. He played Pete Cochran in The Mod Squad. That Steve McQueen-like handsome character. The rugged good looks. The girls, oh, they loved him. The guys, they wanted to be him. He had that edge. He was sensitive. He was tough. He was a guy who didn't back down from a fight. He never looked for one but he wouldn't back down. Well, Michael Cole, he recently released a searing autobiography, I Played the White Guy, and it is a tough read, but it's an important one. And this story has the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, and my goodness, Hollywood couldn't come up with a story like this, as this man struggles with his demons from the earliest time on. It's an honest confession, and Monty Montgomery, our intern, Well, he does a heck of a job here with this story. And let's begin, as we always begin, or try to here, with the voice of the subject. Here's Michael Cole. We were on location in a place called Malibu, California, and the phone rang. A guy gave it to me, and he said, it's from Dallas. And I said, I don't know anybody in Dallas, but... Maybe it's a fan or a friend, or so I better respond. And the voice on the other end says, Hey, they called me Mickey because of the Irish, right? Hey, Mickey, uh, it's your dad. I bloody froze, which I'm doing right now. I just froze. I said, My dad is dead. And he said, No, 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 you're real, Father. I said, Shut up. If you ever call me again, or try to get a hold of me, I will kill you. And you stay away from Ma. You stay away from Ted. You stay away from me. Because if you don't, I will kill you. You have no idea the pain that you've caused our family. Actor Michael Cole never knew his father. He had left him and his family when Cole was in the first years of his life. A life that would be chocked full of twists, turns, and struggle. But there was one person in his life who remained his rock. His mother. We called her Ma. We would just have to wait. Sometimes, all day, I'd sit up by the bedroom window in the attic and wait for her to come home and Sometimes she had a night shift somewhere at at all these jobs that were very difficult and 
But she always made sure that Ted and I were cleaned and we were dressed as good as we possibly could be. She got a job in a really nice clothing store. And when we were about, oh, six or seven, we start, we modeled some clothes. And the, the background was uh, the capital of Wisconsin in Madison. And the store let us keep those clothes. So that's what we got through some pretty harsh winters with, etc., etc. Ma worked very hard. One of the most extraordinary struggles for Michael, his brother Ted, and his mother came as a result of a sudden move out of Wisconsin in a futile attempt to find Michael's father. Well, we're only two, three years old, and uh, Ma said, guess what, boys, we got, I remember this so exactly. I got tickets to go to Dallas. We're going to go find your dad. I got very excited, but so we got on the train and we went down to Dallas. Couldn't find him anywhere. I know he ducked out of town somewhere. I don't really know that, but that's what I think. And now we're broke, limited, this beat the hell a little room somewhere. So we got, she, oh, she sold peanuts at the Cotton Bowl. You know, the big football game in there. And she sold peanuts and, to get us some money so we could get back to Wisconsin. Michael became the protector of his mother at a young age, filling a void that his biological father had opened when he abandoned them. But Michael could not protect himself from a problem that would follow him through adulthood. I was probably about 11 or 12, and things weren't really going any better. We lived in a pretty tough neighborhood. Anyway, I started drinking them pretty soon. I I kept on drinking. And for years and years, and I would find myself stealing booze from liquor stores around the neighborhood. And, and uh, it was no good. I, I mean, I if you, you could, if you were tough, let me put it that way, because all I was doing was drinking and fighting. And if you were tough, you drank a lot. <laughs> I, I wasn't afraid of a soul, except maybe my own. During this time, Michael's mother became pregnant with the child of her boyfriend, a man that Cole had less than a smooth relationship with. I didn't want anybody to, to have my ma except me and my brother. And this guy was a military-type guy. And, whoa. All of a sudden, there were restrictions, and uh, that I hated restrictions of any kind, any authority. See, I'm starting to get worked up now. We'd get in arguments and fights, and I mean fights. He was a big guy, too. He always reminded me of John Wayne. We're arguing like hell over something, and Ma was pregnant. She was sitting in the corner on the rug crying. And I said, you son of a bitch, can't you see what you're doing to Ma? She's going to lose the baby. Is that what you want? And I put your goddamn gun away. And uh, he, saw, he looked over at Ma and he had this 45 pointed right up between my eyes. <laughs> 
and I didn't give a shit. But he looked over at Ma and slowly put the gun down. Michael's mother would ultimately give birth to a stillborn child. The loss had a profound effect on him. Soon, Michael would be the father of his own child, though, with a girl from a powerful Madison family who was the same age, 16. I went to a, a priest and somebody I knew at the local big paper, the Wisconsin State Journal, and told them about the situation so nothing would happen to that little baby because we both wanted her. I don't care if we were nine or, or, or 38, we wanted that child because I think in the back of my mind, it was, I'm not going to be like my own biological father. And we got married in Milwaukee in an apartment. And there was, I thought, I swore, I said to Mama, Ma, I'm done drinking. I'm, I, 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 no more fights. That's it. For, for, I don't know, second or third week, I was at this new school in Milwaukee, which we had moved to from Madison. And I had my foot out a little bit, out from under the desk. And this bastard come along and he kicked my foot. See, I was the new kid, right? But he had no idea what was raging inside. And I found the son of a bitch afterward. And I had made one friend who was a pretty tough guy and we got that bastard. Because he was just, just being an ass. And I slammed his head into the locker and blood was pouring all over the thing. I don't want to sound tough here because I'm not, but it was at that time. I was just raging inside. And uh, on the way home from that, if that wasn't enough, I saw a young boy get hit by a car and killed same day. I got to get out of here. I got to get back with Sharon. I, I, I'm going to be 16 pretty soon. I can go to school. My probation officer couldn't even stop me. And uh, next day I got on a Greyhound and went back to Madison. Michael's first marriage would ultimately end in divorce. Michael was lost, lonely, and drinking heavily, and decided to get out of Wisconsin and head west to San Francisco, a move that would change his life forever and fill a hole that had been opened for so long. It doesn't get much more raw than that, folks. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the highs, the lows, and the redemption of Michael Cole, author of I Played the White Guy, his story continues here on Our American Stories. And we're back here at Our American Stories with Michael Cole's story. 
And when we last left off, Michael had gotten married. He'd had a child, gotten a divorce, left Wisconsin for the West Coast. And in San Francisco, to be more precise. And it was in the mid-1960s. And what a time in American history, especially out West. Here's Cole with what exactly happened during that transformative time in his life. I loved San Francisco. It was everything I'd heard it was, you know, the flower child. Myself and Dave, we worked out a couple of things where we could survive, even with the help of some prostitutes that we knew. Then I met a guy who was really, I loved him, and he helped me out. He happened to be the lighting person for uh, uh, Berkeley, and he asked me if I wanted to go with him. And so I could see what the hell he does. And I said, yeah. Something happened. I walked out on the stage and I said, this is strangely familiar. I started to think about the audience. There. There was finally my family. And I, I, I love that. It's always been my feeling that um, within the arts and the creative community, you don't choose it. It finds you. Michael Cole, the man whose childhood had been quickly ended by unimaginable loss, now had a purpose, to be on stage. Michael started hanging out around theaters during this time, and soon the gears started to spring into motion. I I, I was bartending right across from a big beautiful theater in Hollywood and uh, the the cast would come in afterwards and they would talk about acting and one night a producer came in and he said if you, you want to be an actor huh, Michael and I said I think so yeah something's beating in here that's not leaving me alone and he said what you got to do first you got to study so he said, go see Estelle Harmon. She was the head of UCLA drama department. She was at Universal Studios handling the new talent, etc., etc. So I, I don't know my ass from first base about any of this, except that something was beating very much in my heart. So I, I went in, into Estelle's workshop, and there was this very pretty lady sitting there behind her desk and she said are you Michael so she said I want to read a scene with you I didn't even know what the hell that meant and uh, I'll never forget it it was a scene from all my sons it was about during the war Richie Robinson was making bad planes and some of the flyers were getting killed and anyway we read that and I'm his son and I got really 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 pissed we had the scene was about them arguing. Fell asleep early this morning and I let it. Yeah, I know. I heard it crying. And when we stopped, I, I didn't know what to do. My hands were sweating. And, uh, and, and I looked up and Estelle just said, I want you to come back. And I won't charge you because I know you don't have any place to live. But that was only the start for Cole's success in Hollywood. And soon, another massive break would come his way. 
there was a student at Estelle's, a girl, and she was going to do a scene at Paramount and uh, for a film that, that she was going to be in, or hopefully be in. And so she asked me if I would go, it was from Picnic, and she asked me if I would uh, come over and be her partner, scene partner thing. And so, uh, sure, what first time ever in the studio, ever at Paramount. And we um, walked in and said hi to the casting person, et cetera, et cetera. And we did the scene. It really went very well. Uh, so they took her, she got the job, they took her in the back and I was leaving. Casting director says, uh, Michael, wait a minute. I want you to take this, you go study it and come back at four o'clock. Why? <laughs> because Sterling Siliphant was gonna be there and he was getting ready to do a series based on Sunset Boulevard. And we go back over there for, and I walk in the same day, and sure as hell, there's Sullivan sitting there, very handsome man. And he could have been on either side of the camera. He said, here, read this, and he gave one to the girl. And the scene went wonderful, because this was a tough James Dean kind of guy. and. I pulled something off. I don't know. I was kind of pissed and kind of, you know, I was I was uptight. The guy was like Dean. And, you know, that didn't hurt I, at all. So after we do the reading, I was shaking. It's, it's just my hands are shaking now. Mr. Siliphant stood up and walked over to me face to face like about six inches from my face and said, Michael, I want to do this series with you. Almost fainted. Unfortunately for Michael, that series would never pan out due to Silifant having a falling out with the network. But that didn't stop him. His name was now out in the Hollywood network and people were noticing. Word got around to Aaron Spelling's casting director. And this agent who I immediately signed with said, uh, can you come over? There's a new show that Aaron Spelling is doing and he's going to be a giant producer. And uh, I said, well, yeah, I, would. I still had my James Dean thing going. Yeah, but what? What's it about? It's called Mod Squad. That's the dumbest I ever heard. And so I walked in there and saw this, and there's this tiny little man, one of the most powerful people in the industry, sitting behind the desk. Aaron, Aaron uh, launched into his spiel about Mod Squad, etc., etc. I said, wait, 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 wait a minute. What the hell does Mod Squad mean? I said, it's about police. Uh, Right away, that caught him. My attitude caught him. Because everybody else would be Googling and say, oh, this is so neat. This is so wonderful. All kids are going to love this. That. This is really dumb. And you want me to play a cop that busts other kids? Are you kidding? I would be with them. 
that's kind of the idea. You're never going to carry a gun. You're never going to. You're going to deal with drugs and the wars, the environment, uh, uh, racism. Because you got the three of us, you know, black, white, and blonde. Child abuse, even domestic violence. None of that stuff was ever touched by any TV show. And.、Uh, And he said, I, I, "I told him. I said, 'I think still this sounds like a dumb idea, and I'm going. I'm leaving. I'm out of here.'" Aaron jumped up on his desk and he said, "Michael, Michael, don't go. Don't go. That's exactly what I want." The Mod Squad would run for a total of five seasons, racking up six Emmy nominations, four Golden Globe nominations, and would have a massive cultural impact upon America. But all good things have to come to an end, and the end was hard for Michael. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Michael Cole's book "I Played the White Guy," and my goodness, it only gets more interesting. Michael Cole's story here on our American story. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Michael Cole. When we last left off, his massive hit show, The Mod Squad, well, it was off the air. It had left a cultural impact. But what happened next to Michael Cole? Well, let's take a listen to the last part of this remarkable story. First of all, it was the first time I really kind of had a family with Clarence and Peggy and Tyga Andrews. And even the crew—we had a beautiful crew that became my family—and so it was—it was rough. I was really drinking. What helped me along that line? I was got to do some really good plays.、Uh, one was、uh, "Cat on a Hot Tin Roof," and we did that down in New Orleans. But it, it eventually wound down to not. I moved. I got a divorce. A second one. And I moved up into the woods in a, in a log cabin, literally. Me and my two cats. I I didn't know where the hell I was going. But somewhere along the very young age, I realized this this thing called loneliness was always hanging around. All right. So you're a little lonely. You watch the other kids play with their dads and families, etc. But I made it up in my mind that this loneliness was very loyal, and it was not going to leave me. So I simply turned it around and made it my buddy, and it worked for many, many years. Finally, I had to, you know, I got out of that log cabin, and、um, which I loved. But anyway, I went, walked into this bar where, and there was a friend I saw at the bar. And、uh, a girlfriend, and, you know, a friend's friend, 
And uh, I said, hey, how you doing? She said, fine, fine. Michael, I want you to meet my friend Shelly. And uh, she said, are you kidding? Shelly is beautiful. And she's intelligent, really intelligent. And she's still one of the guys. So there was this bastard sitting on the bar stool next to her that kind of kept leaning into her. So right away I got my shoulder down in there between them. I started squeezing up to, which I'm doing right now, <laughs> squeezing up to the bar and said, the f*** do you want? And uh, he went away. And Shelly and I started talking. And that was, oh, something happened really neat. I was talking to Shell, and all of a sudden in my heart, I hear, uh, it's her, Michael. It's her. And I said, I know, Ma, I know. I swear to God that happened. <laughs> and from that night on, Jesus, 25, almost 30 years ago, we've never been apart. Michael's drinking was getting worse. And Shelley went the distance to try to get help for him, going as far as to take classes herself on how to deal with alcoholics. But nothing was working. And something more had to be done. Well, she had found a sponsor, like, you know, for AA stuff that really wasn't working out. You think you can do it on your own, et cetera, et cetera. Well, within two or three days from that, they had an intervention on me. And uh, I went to, uh, two days after that, I went to Betty Ford's. And uh, she, she was wonderful, but man, I thought I got drafted. That's some of these places are tough, and they don't—they're—they're they're there not to screw around. Take off your clothes, blah blah blah. Search—they search every cavity on your body because a lot of drugs will be snuck in, and, uh, and wherever you could put booze too, I guess. And you know what? I like I said, I, I felt I got drafted. I couldn't stand the fact that she, to watch the taillights when Shelly left. We both were crying and stuff like that. But uh, in, a, in, in a couple of days, it got to be a little better. It got a little better. Every day was you, whatever like dorm-like place you were in. You got, I got real close to some of the guys. Like there was a couple of guys from Vietnam that, that were alcoholics. And one guy I remember, oh man, he was a helicopter pilot. And he landed down in the, in the grass, like with, and flattened the grass with the blades. And, and uh, guys came running out of the brush around there, jumped into the helicopter, and he took off. Well, when he said, we got to get out of here, he turned to his buddy, his co-pilot, and his face was gone. And he, like, became one of my best friends. And I understand he's doing fine now. I hope there's a lot of, I mean, I don't hope, but I, well, I hope you're listening if there's anybody out there that needs some help, because that's one of the roughest ones I ever heard. And he became an alcoholic, had uh, 
we became close and I, again, like I said, uh, I know he's doing really good today. It worked the other way too, kind of. Uh, we had like a reflecting pool, a reflection pool, whatever you call it. And uh, I would go out there and sit by myself and just think. You know, it wasn't that long ago where you had your name on every marquee in the country, kind of thing. And now you're sitting here thinking about how you screwed up everything and how booze did it. And one day, a guy comes walking over to me and he says, hey, you're Michael Cole, right? Yeah, my name is Mickey Mantle. Almost fainted. You all got, you all in the same uh, boat. Shelly and Jennifer came down. There was a thing called Family Week. And everybody's a little bit shaky that their loved ones are going to come down. And what you do is you sit in the middle of a room, face to face in a chair, and then all the rest of the Elkies sit around you in a big circle. And you sit there in the middle of the room, and this person tells you how much you've hurt them. And I'm starting to cry right now again. My daughter was Daddy, when you and Mama were fighting, and that kind of thing. Well, we just held each other for a long time. And then I had to do it again with Shelly. And I, I got to know at that moment that uh, we would be together forever. And uh, Shell basically said the same thing. And she couldn't do it anymore, and et cetera, et cetera. And so I totally understood. And uh, we had the whole joint was crying. Man, it was very, very powerful, and uh, we still are 20 some, 25, 6, 7 years later, we've never been apart. Cool would get better over time, and today is sober and living a much better life. He credits Betty Ford and his wife Shelley for that, but also something central to his life today, his faith. First of all, it came really strong when I said before about the alcoholism, that you have to have a somehow, some kind of spiritual foundation. This is the truth. My mother called me at work one day. She was crying, almost hysterical. And there was a crucifix. I've never said this to anybody else. But if it can help somebody out there, it's true. And she was crying, and she took me into the bedroom, and she had a crucifix that was on her mother's casket. And she said, look, and it was just a little brown wooden and plaster-like painted gold body. And from the crown on the head, there were little tiny drips of blood and even to the 
slice on the side where the spear was and down the inside of the legs and onto the feet where the nails were. And they were all very, very frightened and I just, that's when I really started calling on my buddy Christ. And I took off with him and we've remained the same. And great job on that, Monty, and that's Monty Montgomery, our Hillsdale intern. And thank you to Michael Cole for this raw and unflinching look at his own life. And that scene, boy, I mean, I'm holding back the tears as he's listening to his daughter and then his wife talk to him about what he'd done to her. And my goodness, that he was willing to listen, to bear it, and to do something about it. And then telling that last story about his buddy Christ and that cross and how it helped him carry over the finish line and become the man he'd always wanted to be, the father he'd always wanted to be, and the husband he'd always wanted to be. Michael Cole's story. This is Our American Story.